really give you the big idea of this this evening's sermon in three words. God is faithful. But then thing we're going to take away from this evening is this. God is faithful. And he shows himself to be faithful in this passage in three ways. He is faithful to his people. Number one. (coughs) He is faithful to his promises. Chapter 27, verses 1 through 11. He is faithful to provide his people with a new job. Chapter 27, verse 12 to the end. A new leader in Joshua who finds this an even greater leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of ground to cover up this evening, so I want us just to get stuck straight into this passage. God is faithful to his people. As we pick things up this evening in chapter 26, it opens with the words after the plague. It's reminding us that the first generation are finished. They're over, they're gone. 24,000 died in the plague, the last of the first generation. The final two verses of chapter 26 tell us that Joshua and Caleb are still alive. And we know that Moses is still alive. So put very simply, there are only three people alive from that first generation. All the names that are recorded on your page in front of you in the second census of numbers, it's a new generation. And as we are introduced to the nation, we have a sense of excitement and anticipation. Because every time we met someone from this second generation of the chapters just before this one, it's a real sense that they're not going to be anything like their fathers or mothers. They're not going to be a faithless generation to go backwards in unbelief. But they're going to be a faithful generation who go forwards in faith. In fact, we got a little hint of that last week with Phineas, who made atonement and stopped the plague by killing those who committed that heinous sin in the tent of meeting. Now, if you were here for the very start of this series, I wasn't even here for the very start of this series, um, you will remember in chapters 1 and 2 that that's where we have the first senses. First generation. And it's rather striking that if you compare the two the two sentences that that their arguments are the same way. God commands the census to be taken. God says he wants all the names of all the men who are fighting age, that is twenty and up. And in both censuses we read about their clans and their families. What's different? Well, what's different is in the second census, we're given more detail. We're given detail about those who rebelled, the families, the tribes, revolted. And in the second census, we're also given more information about the various tribes. And the reason for that is this. God will divide promised land in accordance with the various clans, tribes, depending on their size. If they're a larger one, they'll get a larger piece of land. If they're a smaller one, they'll get a smaller piece of land. It was really fascinating. This week I was up in Edinburgh 
And every moment there was free time, I was quickly opening my commentaries in my Bible to, to think, oh, I'm going to preach on numbers. And you pick up all these commentaries, and what they do is, is they, they place the first census against the second census, and they, they try and spot all the differences, and they count up all the numbers. And it's a fascinating read which tribes have grown, and which tribes have shrunk. Simeon tribe, one of the most rebellious tribes in the previous chapter, they've shrunk significantly. But you know, the point is you compare them, is it actually compare the, the number of differences? We know from the end of chapter 26 that when fighting men were counted up, they numbered in total 601,730. If you were to come to chapter 2, verse 32, you don't need to do it. All of those in the first census numbered 603,550. Let me put it like this. There's only under 2,000 of a difference between all the men who are counted up. And then, not part of the census, but after both of them, God counts up the priesthood. In the priesthood that is given in the second census, there are 23,000 Levites. Remember, the Levites will not inherit a portion of the land. God is their inheritance, and those men were not to be fighting men. In the first census, there were 22,000, so there's been an increase by 1,000. Now, what is the point of acknowledging these, these small differences? Well, it's this. God has been faithful to preserve for himself. God has a people for himself. This was his purposes to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. This was his purposes to growing them in Egypt, that he would have a people for himself, his treasured possession, a royal priesthood, a, a, a holy nation. And God has been faithful to his people. And, and what's rather striking about that is his people, we know the first generation, have been faithless. They've continued to, they, they continue to rebel and rebel. In verses 8 through 11, we, we get hint of the, remember the episode of Dathan and Abide and the sons of Korah, that great revolt where the Lord had to open up the ground to swallow because these men contended against the Lord. Remember, the first generation was the generation that kept on grumbling in the wilderness. This was a generation that were brought to the very edge of the promised land and they, and they heard the two reports. And the good report they rejected from the bad report. And yet God has been faithful from their offspring to preserve a people for him. Self. Even preserving the Levites, the priesthood, we're being reminded of this. God is faithful to take care of his people's spiritual needs. They will have priests who will serve them in the tabernacle. Priests that will point to the word of God. As we consider God's faithfulness to his ancient people, brothers and sisters, we must remember God has not God remains faithful to you and I today, who is in Christ. You might think, oh, I know that. Remember, you, I, drunk. You, I, we rebel. You and I, we're seduced, just like the Israelites were seduced by the Moabites. 
We're seduced by this world. You know, if it was down to us to enter into the new creation, we would not make it because of our faithlessness. But praise be to God, it is not down to us, it is down to Him. You know, there's things in my Christian life because of my own sin. I sometimes wonder ourselves, God must be done with, done with me now. He must be finished with me now. And yet I have to remind myself of the gospel. God's never finished. Those he begins a good work in, he'll see it on to completion. Now, I think understanding the faithfulness of God can be difficult in our age. You see, we live in a culture where the air we breathe means that sometimes we change the meaning of words. So we live, we used to live in a, in a moral culture. But we now live in a culture of emotion. Because the way people often understand this word is, is being emotion. So for example, the word good. Historically, the word good means if you want to define good, right, bad, wrong. They the word good in a culture of emotion. Well, what makes me feel happy, that's what's good. What is bad, though? What makes me feel sad? Let's think of the word, let's, let's define the, the moral culture, the word faithfulness, say faithfulness in the context of marriage. In a moral culture, to be faithful means to uphold the vows of you took on your wedding day. Even if you find yourself in your marriage and there's things you really struggle to love, your spouse, you will be faithful because you promise. Made a vow, no matter what, till death is born. But in a culture of emotion, faithfulness, well, I'll be faithful if I'm still happy. If this person makes me happy, I'll be faithful. If the bone gets tough, I'm going to get broken. If this makes me unhappy, I'm going to be faithful. Do you know, as a pastor, just in a short time of pastoral ministry, I've actually sat with a handful of couples, married couples, who have told me they're separating. And I said, Why are you separating? I don't feel it anymore, I'm not happy, but you make me happy. He said, But you promised, you made a vow through thick and thin. They say, But no, 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 this doesn't make me happy. And and here here's the reason how I highlight that is because because we live in a social emotion, we can take we can transplant that way of thinking onto who God is. Well, if I'm being obedient, then God will be happy with me. Then God will be faithful to me. And if I'm not being obedient, then God will not be happy with me. He He won't be faithful to me. Brothers and sisters, you need to know the Bible is a moral culture. God is always faithful. Even the sin of his people, the rejection of the bell, did not for his purposes for his people. Faithful. He promised he would bring them into a promised land. He promised them this glorious inheritance. And God is faithful. Even in light of their very unfaithfulness. Now, what is this one? What should we 
our response to a God who is faithful, who is always, to live by faith in Him, to trust in His promises, to hold Him to His word, to know His character is trustworthy. And fascinatingly, as we come to chapter 27, God shows Him faithful. His promises. He makes good on his promises to a small family. And I go to camps, and I'm asked to lead at camps. You know, you often get interviewed as a speaker, and one of the most often, the most asked questions would be, tell us who some of your heroes are. You know, I'll start giving them the obvious answers and say, Paul. And someday, some people are saying, like, nah, don't tell me like the obvious heroes from the Bible. Right? Give me some of your obscure heroes from the Bible. You ever get asked that question? Here's the answer. I've got five female heroines, daughters, solidified, and these women, these women are so faithful. And this episode is recorded here at the beginning of Numbers chapter 27 is not a diversion in the story. Now this is women who understand who God is and they understand who they're supposed to live in light of who God is. They're supposed to live by faith, trusting in His promises to His people. Let's look at chapter 27. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophevah, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machar, son of Manasseh, and the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Kogla, Milka, Terza. So, so here we're introduced to these five daughters. Uh, their father was Zelophevah, and we know that he has died. And these women of the second generation they knew that the great cries of faith, that the great promise that God had made was a portion in the promised land. But here's the problem. Their father had died, but he had no sons. So, that meant their father's name would end. It would pass on to one of their uncles, and if there was no uncles, a distant relative. It was a, I mean, one of the cultures so it, it, it passed on to the son. And these daughters knew that they were not going to receive their father's portion in the promised land. These five daughters are women of the covenant. They understand the covenant making, covenant keeping God. They understand that, you know, generations are people who have been nomads. They've been walking and wandering through the wilderness and in Egypt they were living in a foreign land and bondage and slavery. But they knew that there was a God who had made a promise to their great father Abraham that he would give them a land. They knew that this promise had been reiterated to Abraham and then Jacob. And they knew that to Manasseh was given and therefore to their father. So little by this promise had been received. These covenant daughters knew that they wanted their father's name to live on, that God would be faithful 
to them because they are covenant daughters of the covenant God. And so they do something so audacious. Something that they feel like there wasn't cultural. They, they go up to Moses and, and listen, this, this decision that they made, this wasn't just for themselves. Because they do it in front of the whole assembly, all of the chiefs and all of the leaders. Verse 2, and they stood before Moses and before Eliezer the priest, before the chiefs, and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in Korah, but died for his own sin. And he had no sons. So to make clear, their father had died, but it wasn't part of the rebellious people who died during the rebellion of Korah. And so they say, verse 4, Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. You almost think, come on, come on, you know the culture. Does not that way? Good. Moses. Verse 5, Moses brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, the daughters of the Zalukified are right. <laughs> These women who knew. God is faithful to his covenant promises, his covenant promises, his promised land. They hold God to who he is. They've been trusting in this promise that's been handed down from Abraham through their fathers. And they appeal to God. And Moses brings the case before the Lord. And the Lord says, You're right. And so God says to Moses, You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their fathers, brothers, and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. We, we should stand in a real sense of admiration to these women. Again. What do they get? Get who God is. They get the significance of this promise making, promise keeping God. They understood that they were in a strange predicament. Their father had no sons, his name would not live on, but they got it. The weight of these promises were of eternal significance because this is, this is the inheritance. It's fascinating. If you were to read verses 52 to the 56 of Chapter 26, the key word that keeps on coming up is inheritance, inheritance. These women knew that there was an inheritance from God that was for them. And so God shows him faithful. He makes good on the promises and he says, You will have your inheritance. So significant is there. Request of the Lord, the Lord establishes a law for all of Israel. Look at verses uh, 8 onwards. And you shall speak for, to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. Can I say something? Women have right. Now, that doesn't sound agricultural, that, that actually seems right now. It was obviously. But we as a church, we believe that. Women have rights, they have dignity, value, worth. And brothers in Christ, you must believe that as well. 
You must live that. I'm proud to be a minister of the Free Church of Scotland. You know, when the Free Church of Scotland split from the Church of Scotland, it was in a culture where if you were to call a minister, the only person that could vote for household was a male. No woman had a vote in Britain in 1843. But the fathers of the Free Church, in obedience to God's word, with respect of the equality of male and female in the image of God, recognized the dignity of women and said, when a minister is called, both male and female will vote. Women have their dignity. So minister, you're not saying your heroines in the Bible by daughters of so like that. Now we're not standing in awe of them, we're to stand in awe of their God. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. These five daughters, one like your father, they haven't been brought to the edge of the promised land. They didn't see that huge cluster of grapes. They probably only heard the report passed on to them by their father with Joshua and Caleb saw. They trusted. They trusted that that is the promised land. If there's a portion for us on the basis of who God is, what God has said, we will hold God to that. Church, we got to live to be people filled with faith. This second generation is going to teach us anything is to live by faith, trusting in the promises of God. I wonder if faith impact your life. Does faith just the, the Muslim you exercise you here on a Sunday? Does your faith impact your life Monday through Saturday? Does your faith impact your work? Does your faith impact your home life? Does your faith impact every single thing you do? How you spend your money, use your money, how you use your time, how you think, how you feel. Does your faith impact you? Let's be honest. We've studied the story of the first generation. God held out before them the promised land, and instead of going forward in faith, they went back with their unbelief. And the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus has set out before us. He calls us to faith every single moment of every single day. Does he impact us? Do we go forward? With faith in him does he impact everything we do anyways we're to stand in awe not of these women but of their God and of our God I could give you a, a, a side tangent on covenant theology and why the covenant promises of God are for the people's children the children after them but I'm, but I'm just putting that little thing out so we can maybe discuss it in another time. Thirdly and finally, we see God's faithfulness in the provision of our God. So, as this passage draws to end, we, we're, we're really coming to the end of the leadership of Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, God, come to the mountain, see the land I've given to the people of Israel. Some people wonder, is it what God's saying to Moses this? He was willing to see the land because he'd been rebellious. He was not a the land because he'd been rebellious. He 
some, so some commentators would wonder that God composes up this man and say, see there's the line, because you're sitting again. I don't think that was the reason. I think God in his grace, in his generosity said, yeah, Moses, I've said, you are not entering the line because of your sin. But as a leader of the people, God who acts in grace, I want you to see the line. I want you to take it in the place of the head. Now, what we have in the verses that follow is Moses' prayer. It's a wonderful prayer. In response to what God has said, verse 15, Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man for the congregation. If you ever pray for a, we pray for another man, so this is a great prayer to pray. You shall go out before them and come in before them. You shall lead them out and bring them in. The congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Why is that so Well, because Moses was saying, God, give us a man after your own heart. God, give us a man who will care for the sheep, your flock, and your pasture. And God's answer to Moses' prayer was, so the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man who is the Spirit, and lay hand on him. Normally, the laying on of hands can be a picture of someone receiving the Holy Spirit, but the laying on of hands here, I think the images, uh, the, the, the change of leadership, the passing on of the baton. Now, what's striking is Moses, Joshua's not going to be a leader in the role of Moses. Moses stands unique. Remember how Moses would commune with the Lord face to face. He would go before the Lord, talk to the Lord, go up in the mountain of the Lord, receive the Ten Commandments. Not so with Joshua. In fact, what's really striking is the way in which Joshua will communicate with the Lord is through Eliezer the priest and through a stone called Aram. Now, we don't fully really understand the operational process of how Aram worked, God speaking through Aram, but that's how this was to play out. Why? When Moses was a leader. Joshua was the tribe of Ethiopia. He couldn't enter the tent of meeting. Right? Joshua to enter the tent of meeting, that would be to bring upon his death. And so here we see that Joshua was made a leader. Don't get them all. See some of Moses' authority, he was to lead the people. And so they laid hands on him and they commissioned him as the Lord directed. And takes me preaching to Joshua. I said, You know, Joshua, so I'm not going to say anything groundbreaking here, but Joshua points us to the greater Joshua, to the greatest Savior, Jesus. When's the next time we read in Scripture? That's with no shepherd. When the Lord Jesus saw the multitude. What is God providing Christ in Joshua? That Joshua is just going to be someone who points people to the great leader of the God of all to provide them with Jesus Christ, the shepherd of the flock, the good shepherd who would lay down his life on behalf of his sheep, the good shepherd who would die himself and atone in sacrifice so the sins of all of his people could be forgiven. You know, as we bring this sermon to a close, we got to lift up our eyes of faith to a faithful God. And where do we see his faithfulness most clearly displayed? In Jesus. In Jesus' life. In Jesus' death. In Jesus' resurrection. In Jesus' ascension. In Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father. Because there he ever lives to pray for us. God.
26 and 27 prepare us for anything. It is for the faith, it is for the faithfulness of God to his people, to his promises, and to provide us with a glorious Savior in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for how faithful you are, how glorious you are, how you show that to your people of old, how you show that to your people, to us your people tonight. When we woke up this morning, you were faithful to give us new mercies. Because we're great sinners. We don't deserve this new day that you've given us that we've filled it with so many blessings that we've taken for granted. And as we thought on how faithful you are, our specialist in this, we just want to have it to close this or stay safe. As we go from here, we want to be those who live by faith, trusting that which is ours, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you will take us into the promised land, into the new creation in Thank you that Jesus is our glorious inheritance, and thank you that we are his. We pray then, as people of faith, that this faith would inform how we live tomorrow morning when we wake up, and all the decisions we have to make. I pray this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.